We interview experts and enthusiasts in the natural resources field, and we get them to explain what's going on. I'm Natalie. And I'm Heather. Today we have George Wittemeyer, and we're hoping to talk to him about his current research and his work with elephant conservation. Yeah, again, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So our first question is, we know you've been doing a lot of work with the human influences on wildlife. Can you talk more about the current research you're doing? Yeah, so in CSU in general, given that we're land-grant institution and a lot of our departments are more applied, we tend to do work on issues that are affecting whatever topic we're dealing with so that we can find solutions to problems. Obviously, wildlife is facing a lot of challenges. So a report was released this past week that showed that most species have declined over the last three decades, and they estimate that wildlife in general are down 60 to 70 percent. And so what we're facing is, is sort of broad-scale declines and challenges to, to even keep a lot of these species on the planet. So our work, or the work that my group does and a lot of people in my department do, is focused on finding solutions that will help us protect these species and allow them to persist even as we're facing, you know, increased pressures from humans, increasing human populations, increasing resource extraction, generally increasing uh, land use change. And so how can we keep the wildlife there in the face of those types of pressures? 60 to 70 percent is a really big decline. What are some of the factors that are causing that? Yeah, it's almost all of it is driven by human land use change. So habitat conversion, you know, some of it is over harvest, over hunting. I tend to work on that when you have species that are really high value, which elephants are because of their ivory, their teeth. Those species can get over harvested, directly hunted. But for the most part, what we're talking about is just humans that have removed habitats or changed habitats to make it more conducive for us, for our species. And the cost of that is the loss of other species that rely on those habitats. So that by and large is the driver. Climate change is coming in now to be a force that's impacting a lot of species as well. And we expect in the coming decades, it might be a huge player. The discussions on what climate change will do to coral and and marine environments is really pretty dire and pretty scary. So we'll see how that plays out. But up to this point, it's really been us changing the landscape, removing native vegetation, turning it into agriculture, doing mining or removing natural resources, that kind of stuff has really been the big driver of these declines. It's never good to hear that humans are the ones causing it, but it's also kind of pretty obvious based on the way we live. It's pretty obvious. That's true. Like, There's never been a species as large as us with a body that's as large as that's been as numerous as us on the planet. It's remarkable what we've done. We've been able to convert a variety of places, a variety of ecosystems to benefit us and to allow us to proliferate. So that's fantastic. And I think it speaks to ingenuity of the humans. If we want to look at it on the sort of glass half full side, We've been able to manipulate these habitats for ourselves to do well. And I think if we do some thinking and and strategically think about what we need to do, we can probably do a much better job of keeping wildlife on the planet in these habitats as we change them for our benefit. And I think what we've done so far is adjusted things for our benefit without putting too much thought into what ramifications that might have. You know, I'm hopeful, especially with your guys' generation, that you guys, if you think about what to do and how to do it wisely, you can do a better job. We can, you know, secure the resources we need for poverty alleviation and 
keeping people healthy and, and getting the nutritional requirements they need, we can fulfill that objective while also keeping wildlife populations on the planet. It's, it's challenging to do it, but I think the outlook, I, I just think we need to focus much more on the balance of our impacts and playing off different scenarios and then coming up with solutions can help reduce the, the overall impacts. And so I think knowledge of this problem is key to coming up with those solutions. So I'm hoping it's all riding on your guys' generation. <laughs> I don't know if I want that pressure, but I think you're right. You got it. (laughs) You're welcome. And so I think something that we're really interested in also is there's this kind of divide between research and then action that I've always been really curious about, about how we have this research that says this is an urgent problem. And then they're kind of, it seems to stop there sometimes. So I was just wondering if you had any thoughts about that and maybe how we could make that better, why that's happening. Right. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting discussion point in sort of academic sciences for a long time. I think the generation before my generation thought that the role of scientists was strictly to produce information and never interpret it or never facilitate its infusion into the policy process. I think my generation is much more interested in producing information and help communicating it. And I think your generation, given what you guys have grown up with, is going to be way more effective at that than we are. I think you guys are used to global level communication processes, and that's not what I grew up with. And so we were more narrowly focused in who we were interfacing with. And you guys are, for example, this podcast, you guys are producing sort of mass scale media at what I consider a young age. I think your generation will be much more effective at communicating. I think one of our failures has been that we haven't been effective at communicating. So like what I just told you guys was sort of gloom and doom, and it probably wasn't inspiring to anybody to get out and make a change. And so I, you know, I think that's one of our problems in my generation. We're not good at lifting people up and getting them really interested in these issues and getting them to making them sort of politically actionable and infusing them in policy and getting things done to solve the problems that the research has identified. So again, you guys can do a better job than we've done on this. Well, I, fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we're trying to do, yeah. At kind of switching gears into more of the, el- the stuff with elephant conservation that you've done, um, can you just kind of explain your involvement in that? Yeah, area? so I've been studying elephants for most of my life, for half my life. I've been studying one population in northern Kenya for over 20 years now, And that population, we have all of the elephants identified individually. So we we can tell them all by their ears. Their ears have like little cuts and nicks and stuff. And they're really distinct. It's really easy to tell them. You can also get used to their faces and sort of, you know, you can tell them a bit. But their ears are really obvious. And so they tend to be a really easy species to study and identify because of that. It's not rocket science, really. Anybody can do it is get to know elephants if you're interested because they're so distinct looking. But anyway, they so they're really easy to tell. And we've been studying them individually for a long time, and we've been looking at all sorts of questions with them from behavior. They're really interesting behaviorally. They're, they're very, as you know, and I, as you mentioned, that elephants are really popular. A lot of people are interested in elephants, and I think one of the reasons is because they're so intelligent and they're really interesting to watch because they're behaviorally really complex. Yeah, I've been really lucky and blessed in my life that I've gotten to to get to know elephants and and try to to glean information and understand them a bit better than 
what we knew before. And it's been a great experience. It's been a lot of fun for me to do. Okay, sorry. I just, I'm curious what made you go, like, I'm going to study elephants. Yeah, so it's kind of a circuitous route. I think a lot of these things are just based on luck in some respect and also perseverance. When I was an undergraduate, I was really interested in a bunch of stuff, but I loved being outdoors. I loved playing around the outdoors. And because of that, I was really interested in conservation. I was doing a biological science degree and was sort of somewhat biomedical focused. And I did my EMT. I liked chopping infections out of people's legs or things like that. I, th I found that kind of interesting. But I also liked dealing with wildlife, all that kind of stuff. And so, I, you know, I just, I didn't really know what I was going to do, but I was just sort of setting up the baseline so I could go a few different paths. And then I did a study abroad project in East Africa and met some people there. And I came back my last year of undergraduate and I went to the grants office and I wrote a grant. Um, actually, I flipped through this huge book first because it wasn't online. And I had to flip through there, and it was really hard to find anything that was valid. But I wanted to find something that would fund me to go back and run around and do conservation in Africa. And so, and finally, I found a few. I applied to them. I got rejected from most of them, but one of them funded me. And, and so then I went out, and I started working on elephants. And then it's sort of been that same process ever since. Like, okay, the money's ending. Got to find more money. Oh, I got rejected from 80% of the things mm -hmm. I applied to. But... <laughs> One of them came through and so I can keep going. When you're out there doing this type of work, I think it's in interesting to see what skills you have, what you're good at, what you might not be great at, and start honing in where you can have the biggest impact. And so for me, that's what I was trying to figure out is where am I effective? Where are the personality traits I have or whatever, the interests I have? Where can I channel them to help the situation, which in this case was elephant conservation issues. And so with trial and error, I sort of honed my path. And then it turned out I was relatively good at the scientific side. And I think why I've been able to do this path, which is kind of a unique path, I guess, doing elephant conservation, is that anytime I, I would sort of meet someone, I would see an opportunity and I would really sort of try to open doors. Even if there was like a very weak chance, I would, I would do my best to knock on that door and see what could happen. And then whenever I got an opportunity, I would do my absolute best at that opportunity, assuming that if it might be my only chance. And if, so if you get one chance and you sort of do it halfway, it's probably not going to go any place. But if you get that one chance and you put everything you can into it, put your heart and soul into it, and then it works out, it can open other doors. Even now in my life, there's still many doors that are you don't have access to. And if you can knock on them and get a little bit of a little opportunity, you, you should definitely make the most of it. You know, people remember if you didn't do well or you, you sort of failed to produce what you promised or those kind of things that mm -hmm. sticks with you. So you got to really do your best and, and, and then it can lead to other paths and other doors and you can't predict it necessarily. That's how I got to where I am. I think you think yeah, <laughs> the best of my recollection. Can you tell me what it was like the first time you experienced an elephant in the wild? Because we see them in zoos and stuff, but I can't imagine what that's like. Yeah, well, so in the wild, it's, I guess for me, it's really the whole context of the wild. So the elef elephants are super cool and watching them in a zoo is pretty cool. You can see their behavior there. If you're in a zoo where they have a baby, it's wonderful to watch the baby. Like they're so cool to watch and they're so fun 
and they're, they're so, so funny. Cute. Yeah. And they're so cute. <laughs> I think everybody in the world enjoys that no matter who you are. Mm. And so I think behaviorally you can see the complexity and they're really interesting. I think that's why they're one of sort of humans' favorite species in some respects is because they're just so interesting. And there's a lot going on, you know, even in a zoo where it's pretty limited what they're exposed to that you can see there's so much going on um, inside their brains. And so, but when you're in the wild, it's a whole nother realm because where elephants remain in the world tends to be these vast, very large landscapes, sort of big, wild areas. And so, and the, you know, elephants are almost emblematic of those type of places. And so being in those landscapes is somewhat overwhelming anyway. It sort of opens you up in a way because you're in this vast wilderness so it sort of opens your perceptions in your mind, I think, and it makes you more open-minded, more easily impacted by what you're around. And then you come up on this emblematic, you know, massive animal that is really dwarfed in size because it's in such a huge landscape. And then you get to see all their interactions and it just, yeah, it's, it's mind-blowing. And so it's challenging to work in these places logistically as as well as socially. There's all sorts of things that are challenging about it. And so it's not for everybody, but for me, the, that exposure and that first um, first contact or first interaction was, it just blew my mind. And I never felt anything like it. And so I you know, keep going back, trying to get as much exposure to that as possible. Cool. So what surprised you most about elephants when you were doing your research, like behaviorally or socially? Listener. There's so many things. It's like human. It's like when you have a relationship with a person and you keep you know, as you get to know someone better, you keep sort of peeling back different layers and there's something new about this person that you didn't know. And there's sort of always something interesting and different about people. And that's the way elephants are. And, you know, maybe that's the way cows are too. I don't know. But um, <laughs> for me, I have this sort of bias that when you're, if you really get to know a cow, I'm, you know, and people have their cows named and they love their cow and they have this wonderful, sweet cow they know. And, but I just tend to think that there's not as many layers in the, the cow to peel back and and maybe and I might be stepping in it here and getting in trouble. Um, <laughs> but the thing with elephants is it's just like every time you interact and I've been going out and studying this population for decades literally and the same elephants and it's still every time I'm out there it's always something going on that I, I don't understand what's happening they're interacting in a new way there's I get to see a new type of behavior so there's just constantly something that's it's intriguing uh, about them and so I don't know. That it's like a it's like the greatest soap opera drama you can imagine and and so you're getting to watch this and it's and not everybody else gets to watch it is mm-hmm. is also kind of an interesting part of that too. And so to, if you can you have to translate some of that to help people get to see that as well so they can appreciate you know we don't want the greatest soap opera on the planet to get canceled with nobody even knowing it. <laughs> so you have to do your best to communicate and show that to people as well. Save the soap opera. I like that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. I don't, maybe that's a bad analogy, too. Yeah, I loved it. That was great. <laughs> I don't even, you guys don't watch soap operas. <laughs> do you? Uh, you maybe, do? Okay. Maybe all right. I'm not kidding. I like soap operas. Okay, good. I've actually never watched a soap opera now that I bring it except for the elephant soap opera. The elephant The best one. The best one. Clearly. I, I can only imagine it would be better than the regular <laughs> yeah. soap operas. Right. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's wonderful. Um, and so can you talk about human impact on elephant populations and what you found about that and if they're under stress and what those aspects of that look like? So human impacts on elephants is a deep conversation, but the thing about elephants is they, for 
millennia, elephant ivory, so elephant teeth, has been a really coveted substance and one of the most valuable substances on the planet. So, you know, gold and ivory was sort of the, the creator of kingdoms back in the day. And it's, funny enough, it still plays out like that. And so it's a highly valued product and the valuation sort of ebbs and flows with different affluence coming into different cultures. As the United States became more affluent, we were driving a massive global trade in ivory, you know, 100 years ago. And that was feeding billiard balls and and stuff like that, sort of these luxury items that the wealthy like to have. And it led to, you know, the decimation of elephants across Africa was feeding this sort of, you know, huge industrial product generation of based on ivory. And so what sort of happens is as that came out and as it became recognized that we were playing a role in, in what it actually meant to buy these products. So, yeah, it looks beautiful and clean on the shelf, but its origination is much uglier. And as that information came out, people in our culture, they started rejecting that product and going towards alternative substances, which are just as useful. And what's happened is other societies have sort of emerged. Japan became a huge influence of different parts of Europe. And most recently, China, because its economic prowess has increased, it's started buying up ivory. It's traditionally always been a coveted item there. There's absolutely gorgeous artwork that's carved in ivory. And it's been there for millennia. And it's only as sort of large number of people become affluent and can start purchasing these products that you get really intense pressure on a species. And so that's what's happened sort of in the last 10 years with elephants. Is it's happened episodically for the last couple hundred years for elephants. But the, the last decade, what we've seen is really the Chinese market coming online, starting to buy ivory. And that's led to really large-scale killing of elephants in the wild for their ivory, the ivory tusk get valued so highly that you get highly trained professional militias going in, um, shooting elephants, taking the ivory and selling it. You know, it's the same as the drug war. Poppies and heroin is worth a lot. And so you get, you know, organized crime coming in. It becomes really militarized and it, a lot of people die because of it. And it's a you know huge money revenue stream. And so ivory is very similar to that. The thing with ivory is the value has fluctuated with the amount of consumption that goes on. And so this Chinese consumption is really, as it kicked up, the value got much higher and all of a sudden criminal elements turned their attention to harvesting elephants, pulling out the ivory to sell as a lucrative revenue stream. And so that's what we've been dealing with. And so a big part of the impact on these sort of charismatic species is driven by cultural valuation of products in that wildlife species. So rhino horn is, is the classic one. It's the most valuable substance on the planet. It's driven by medicinal beliefs that you know have no basis in reality, but the placebo effect is very powerful. It's also social status symbols and those kind of things. And so social pressures have huge impacts. And so the result is these species get hammered. And so one of our roles is to identify that this is happening, clarify the cost of these products, and then... The key part is how can we get cultural change? And it's really only cultural change that's going to remedy the problem. Because as long as the value's there, there's always going to be people who are willing to take the risk and try to go get the money that's in that system. With globalization and just kind of this more mass ability to communicate, do you see that it's going to be different from when America had their economic boom 100 years ago and had a demand for ivory? 
or do you think the this Chinese economic growth is going to be different or the same? Or yeah, I th- it's interesting. I think right now what happens is that when demand emerges in some part of the planet because of the economic links between all of the countries and you know everything going on with global trade, the product can get harvested and fed to that market really rapidly. And I think before it must have taken a much longer process to sort of build out those trade routes. So the cost of the networking we have globally is that when there's demand for a product very quickly, you can denude the natural resource to feed that demand. So that's the challenge we face. On the other hand, as soon as it's identified this problem has happened, the the communication is so effective and we can capture video or images or whatever, or news shows or podcasts, whatever, about what's happening, and we can distribute it globally instantly. Um, And so you can have this massive impact on sort of the cultural valuation, the demand for that too. And so how do those two forces interplay and, you know, how does it play out in the end for a species? You know, I don't know. I think a big part of this is that the messaging and the storytelling about what's going on with elephants, you know, what's going on to feed the ivory trade, what's happening to elephants to feed the ivory trade. That story needs to be told by people who are really effective storytellers in the culture that's driving the demand. So I think you have this interesting thing where you really have to have recognition in the demand side culture, the society of the problem, and then communication and then working through timing that demand. Because I think having outside voices flag the problem and pointing fingers and often sort of in a negative light, which in my mind, it is a negative issue. And so it's, you know, it's a negative impact. But I think those kind of things aren't effective at getting cultural change. I think we see this in the elephant story. I think we see it in a lot of the political division in our country today. I think it's sort of the same story. It's like, how do we have a sort of open discussion and bring facts to the table in a way that is effective at getting people interested and trying to solve a problem? I think that's something that we have a lot of work to do. That's definitely not a problem that'll get solved in a year or something. Yeah, yeah no, well, but it's, you know, I think there's a lot of people that are interesting, like you guys are, are making a podcast during your undergraduate, you're getting so much experience in communicating and telling stories and seeing what's effective and what's not. And so, again, I think there are more people out there that are better storytellers than there have been ever before. And so I hope they get attention to these important stories and tell them really effectively and elicit this cultural change. I think that's key. So the research, I think we know the research scientists aren't that great at telling the story. <laughs> yeah, there's a reason you have to have scientists and communications yeah. people. Yeah, there definitely it's a is. a partnership. It's, it can be different skills that's, or, or different personalities. And I think we just had one final question for you. Yeah. Kind of general, Natalie. Yeah, so we want to know what you're currently curious about and what you're thinking about now. I'm very interested to know how we can get the public and get your generation deeply interested in solving environmental issues, I think is a fundamentally important question. The climate change prognosis is really awful. I think it's much worse than I had thought it would be. So I think how are we going to come together to tackle that issue is really tough. I'm really curious to see what comes out. And I think it's going to be really interesting leadership roles for a lot of people to play in solving that problem. And I'm really curious to watch how that plays out. It should be in some ways, you know, when we're when our backs are to the wall and we have major challenges to overcome that sometimes when you see the greatest innovation and the neatest ideas, and so I'm excited to see that in some ways, but scary at the same time. 
with elephants, I'm absolutely fascinated by trying to understand their minds. So getting into the mind of the elephant and, and understanding what drives them. Why do they have such intimate bonds with each other? What builds that sort of foundation that you see in elephant societies? How they use that information to make decisions? I'm really curious about those questions with elephants. They're hard to tackle. They're hard to get to. But I think we've just started scratching the surface of the intimacy and complexity of elephants. And so I'm really interested to, to dig in and understand more about them. I know it's always a hard question. Yeah, we could go on all day. There's so many. I'm sure, like all of us, we have so many questions. I think that's probably why certain personalities get into research and science, is that they're really curious to try to solve a problem, to answer a question. It's fascinating. It's one of the major drivers of people who do this Thank you again so much for joining us. Grow you about your research about <laughs> elephants. <laughs> My pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me.